0: Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for this day and for this time and this ability for us to join together to worship you. I pray now, God, that you would quiet our hearts before you as we turn to your word. Uh, we believe that uh, your words are quite literally the words of life. And so we ask that you would speak uh, not only to our heads, but to our hearts in this moment, God. We ask that your spirit would fill this room, that you would give understanding where there is confusion, that you would give clarity that you would give peace. Pray, God, that we would not leave here unchanged because we have had an encounter with the living God. Speak to us now as that you would speak through me. Uh, Pray that you would strike anything I've prepared that's not from you and anything that is from you that I haven't, pray that you would give in the moment uh, so that your body, the body of Christ, might be built up through the reading and teaching of your word. We love you. Help us to love you more. May the truth of your gospel be communicated clearly. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated for real. Good morning again. So good to be with you. Um, The baby dedication took a little longer than I thought, so we're going to hustle, all right? Uh, We're in Mark today. Shocker for those who are tracking. Mark chapter 8. We're continuing in our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark that we are calling Let's Go. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 21 of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 21. This is what it says. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, He said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Thanks be to God. Uh, if you have been tracking with us, in one of my recent sermons, I, I'm not going to hold it against you if you don't remember because I'm not even sure which one, but in the last month or so, uh, I talked about in my a previous job uh, having uh, to drive a lot of miles. So I, I had a, a season of my life where the job that I had required me to put a lot of miles on the car. In, over five years, I averaged about 30,000 miles a year on my car. I'm not using the same story for this sermon as well, but I'm getting to another point. When you drive that much, uh, not only do you spend a lot of time in your car, but you spend a lot of time at the dealership getting your car serviced. Like I was going every two or three weeks, no joke, for the regular maintenance necessary on a car, uh, oil changes and tire rotations. Uh, Can we thank God for the mileage reimbursement checks? Yes, amen, amen. Uh, They loved me at the car dealership and not for my charming personality. Uh, I was on a first name basis with all of the service technicians. Uh, I would come in sometimes and they'd be like, surely uh, you don't need to be back this soon. And then they look at the mileage on my car and they'd be like, yep, you do need to be back this soon. You're due for more service. Welcome back, Mr. Anderson. Actually, it was like my friend Gary. Welcome back, my friend Gary. Um, Because of that, Because I spent so much time getting my car worked on, uh, I had a front row seat to one of the big kind of changes we've seen in the car servicing world over the last uh, decade or fifteen years. When I first was taking my car in to get it worked on, I would not hear anything from the dealer until the next time I brought it in. Maybe like a random email, you know, we think based on our records we think you're due for your fifty thousand mile tune-up, and I'd be like, I did that like two months ago. You know, you're, you're a little bit behind, or. Uh, We've got a great deal on trade-ins. Have you considered trading in your car to get a new one? And I'm like, no, I'm not looking for a new car. But then I started to get emails, not from the local dealership, after I would take my car in for service. I started getting emails from corporate headquarters. And they were emails asking me about my satisfaction. They were satisfaction surveys. How satisfied were you, Mr. Anderson, with the recent service you had at one of our dealerships? And what was really interesting were the unintended consequences that came as a result of the home office asking customers how satisfied they were with their service. Because it started to happen that the service technicians, before they checked me out, they would say something like, now, Mr. Anderson, uh, you will likely be receiving an email from our corporate headquarters. If there is any reason you can't give us a perfect score for your satisfaction, would you please let us know before you fill out that survey? And I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I started getting emails before I got the satisfaction survey from like the president of the local dealership saying, hey, you're going to get a survey from our home office asking how satisfied you were with your experience. If for any reason you can't give us a perfect score, would you please let us know before you fill out that survey so that we can make it right? It's like who in the home office was getting those surveys and all of a sudden was like every single one is perfect. We're doing an amazing job with our customers. They were very concerned about my satisfaction. They were very concerned with how satisfied I was with the service that they were providing for me. We live in a world that is obsessed with satisfaction. What does it mean to be satisfied? Sometimes We just got to go back to the the dictionary. Good old Merriam-Webster. This is what they have to say about what it means to be satisfied. Uh, This is not the whole definition. These are the ones I wanted to pull out for the, the sake of our message today. Satisfy means to make happy, to please, to gratify to the full, to appease, to convince, or put an end to doubt or uncertainty. To be satisfied is to be happy, pleased, and gratified to the full. Do we know the feeling of satisfaction? I think we do at some level. A lot of us do. Maybe some of us never have. But I think some of us in some way, shape, or form have felt what it means to be satisfied. If you've ever been super hungry and had the opportunity to go to a fantastic restaurant, towards the end of that meal, that feeling when your stomach is full, hopefully it's like a Friday night and you got nothing going on on Saturday morning, maybe you're with someone you love or some people you love, that feeling as the meal finishes up, full, gratified, satisfied. A holiday with people that you love. Maybe it's family that you don't live near or friends that you love. You know, as, as, the, as the turkey is taking its effect and as the game is on TV and as you're moving in and out of consciousness, surrounded by the ones you love, looking forward to dessert, that's the feeling, I think, at some level of satisfaction. A great vacation to, a, to an amazing place in some level, I think gives us a feeling of satisfaction. This is not a sermon on materialism, but if you've ever had the opportunity to purchase a brand new car, the feeling when you get to drive that home, at some level, I think gets at the idea of what it feels like to be satisfied. The problem with that feeling in each one of those instances is what? It doesn't last. We'll get to that in a minute. We live in a world that is obsessed with satisfaction And I think with good reason, particularly for those of us who live here in the West, for those of us who live in a a free market, capitalistic society, I do not think I'm overstating it to say that satisfaction is one of the most important feelings or emotions that literally make our world go. The constitution of our country says that we have the right to pursue life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness, which is a definition here, the pursuit of satisfaction, Part of what we have established our country on is the idea that everyone is allowed to pursue their own satisfaction. And the way that we do that, for many people, is to start companies and organizations. And if those companies or organizations do not, what, satisfy customers or clients, that company or organization is not going to last very long. That's why the car dealerships are so interested with how satisfied were you with your service. Because if you're not satisfied, you're going to go somewhere else and they're not going to stay in business for very long. But again, the problem we have is that we are not easily satisfied and the feeling of satisfaction rarely lasts. I would say that we have a, not just a satisfaction problem, I would say we have a satisfaction crisis. We can't get no. You knew it was coming. Da-da-da. Satisfaction. Da-da-da. Everyone who's bobbing your heads, really, the stones in church. We'll, we'll pray for you. We uh, went as a family over Christmas break to see Sing 2. And uh, so the Sing 2 soundtrack has been hot and heavy in the Anderson household over the last couple of weeks, which some of those songs, that's a real unsatisfying thing. Uh, but some of them, you too, like I, I can run with that. And, and so not only Mick Jagger has it to say it, but, but Bono too. He's climbed highest mountain. He's run through the fields. Something, something, something. But what? I still haven't found what I'm looking for because even though we get snippets of it, when we look at the big picture, we can't get no da-da-da, satisfaction. Da-da-da. All right, that I'll, that might be the last time I do it, but probably not. I think it's really acute in the season we find ourselves in right now. I used to say, for for a long time, I said coming out of COVID, and I don't say that anymore because we have not come out of COVID. We are still in COVID, just a different feeling. We have come out of shelter in place, and that's wonderful. But but I keep seeing and reading articles about the great resignation. People are leaving their jobs in in unprecedented numbers. Why? Why? Because COVID gave us the space and time to analyze, to look at, to, to, to think about our lives and to ask the question of ourselves, what, are we satisfied? And the answer for so many people who are quitting their jobs is no. Here in the Bay Area we, and in this church, I mean, we have had so many people move away. Why? Why? Because it's like, I got some space, I could see what I, I can see, you know I can analyze what my life is like, how I feel about it, how satisfied I am, and the answer is, I'm not very. And if I can just do this same job from Idaho or Montana or Tennessee or Texas, maybe I can get more satisfaction there. We live in a world that is obsessed with satisfaction, but it is not very good at delivering satisfaction. So You will be receiving a survey in just a few moments. It will be asking you, How satisfied are you? Not with your most recent oil change. Everyone who owns a Tesla right now is like, I don't have to do those. And we're like, Good for you. But with your life. How satisfied are you with your life? And here's what I want us to hear this morning, and we'll get into it a little bit in the text Satisfaction can be found. We can get some satisfaction, da-da-da. And it is not something that we have to wait until we, we we get the last paycheck and decide which golf course we want to buy a house on and decide whether we want to play 18 or 36 holes every day. We don't have to wait until then to get satisfaction, and that's not going to satisfy anyway. We can have it right here, and we can have it right now. And I just want you to hear this before we get into the message because I don't think this is something that we think about a lot or we hear a lot. God wants you to be satisfied. God wants your satisfaction. He wants your happiness, your fulfillment, every bit as much, maybe more than you do. And it is possible. So let's, let's talk about what God's word has to say about satisfaction. It may not look like it up front. And when we read these three passages, which kind of feel like they're not really related, but I believe that satisfaction is the theme that unites these three passages that we are gonna look at relatively briefly this morning. We're gonna see three groups. We're gonna see three interactions with Jesus. And we're gonna see three different levels of satisfaction. One group, satisfied. Another group, not satisfied. And another group, unsure whether they're satisfied or not. And my guess is a lot of us are gonna be able to relate to that last one. So. Without any further ado, the main thing I want us to grab, the main thing I want us to learn out of this passage that I just read is this. It's just going to tell you right up front. Satisfaction is found in Jesus. Satisfaction is found in Jesus. I know that's like, well, PG, that's really simple. But it's just, that's what it is. Satisfaction is found in Jesus. So as we turn back to this text, if you were with us last week you'll remember that Jesus left Israel and he went on a tour of the Gentile territories around Israel. He went to Tyre and Sidon. He uh, drove an unclean spirit out of a little girl. He went down to a region called the Decapolis, which is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He healed a man who was deaf and mute, allowed him to hear and speak. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 8, and this is now the third interaction that Jesus has had with Gentiles outside of Israel in this feeding of the 4,000. Now, Uh, He just fed 5,000 back in Israel, two chapters prior. And there are a lot of scholars who think that it was only one event, and for some reason, some of the gospel writers wrote about it twice. I think that's baloney. We're not going to talk about why this morning. I preached a message on it about a year and a half ago. I'm sure you're all going to burn down YouTube looking for that this afternoon. Uh, But that talks about why I think these are two distinct events. And one of the main reasons is what we talked about last week, that by feeding 4,000 people who are not Israelites— miraculously feeding them. Jesus was making a clear and definitive statement just like he did last week about who he came for and why he came. He is still amongst the dogs. And I don't mean that as a put down. Go back to last week's text if you're confused about what I'm talking about. And he is saying, I came for you just as much as I came for the children of Israel. This is what the text says about this feeding of the 4,000. Look at me with me at verse two. First thing that Jesus says is, I have compassion on the crowd. This doesn't really serve this point necessarily, but it's just so good we need to hear it because it is the heart of Jesus. That word compassion in Greek, it comes from another Greek word that means vital organs or entrails. It means like a gut-wrenching response. Jesus is saying, I see the need of these people and it, and it, and it stirs me in my guts. He has so much compassion on them and that is how he feels towards you and I. He has compassion on us. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I love that phrase. Some of them come from where? Far away. Now, does that mean literally? Absolutely. They traveled a long way. Probably Jesus' reputation preceded him. If you're staying for three days, it's probably because it took you a long time to get there. But that is more than a physical description. That is a spiritual description of these people. These people who once were far off have now been brought near. Those who the world said, there's no way God could love you. There's no way you could be close to God. He has compassion on them and they have been brought near. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now that's a confusing question, is it not? Because two two chapters earlier, what did Jesus do? He fed 5,000 men plus women and children from a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And so here we are, two chapters later, and the disciples are saying, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Again, the scholars say some funny things about this. Those who affirm that these are two different events, some of them say, uh, and you can't help but kind of chuckle, maybe they forgot. Maybe they forgot about what happened with the 5,000, and Jesus just needs to remind them again. I can remember what I had at my company Christmas party for dinner in 2009, and, and you're saying that like three months ago, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children and they've already forgotten about it. That's not it. They don't want to feed them because they're not their brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. They brought some kosher food and there's no kosher food here in Gentile territory. And they're like, Jesus, we don't want to share our food with these dogs. And we all know what happens, don't we? Jesus takes seven loaves of bread takes a few fish, prays over them, and feeds 4,000 people. And then skip with me down to verse 8. And they ate, and what? And were satisfied. They ate, and they were satisfied. Someone started clapping, and you can clap for that. (laughs) Because just like far away, that satisfaction is physical, but it is also spiritual. Here's what you miss in the English translation, and I love this. That word back in verse 4, feed, is the same word in Greek as satisfy in verse 8. So the disciples said in verse 4, How can one satisfy these people? Who could possibly satisfy these people? And then we get down to verse 8, and we're told that they ate and they were what? They were satisfied. Why? Because satisfaction is found in Jesus. They ate his bread but they also ate the bread of life and the bread of life satisfied them because satisfaction is found in Jesus. Now listen, that is not the message that our world or our culture gives us, is it? (laughs) What does our world tell us that we need to be satisfied? Here it is, something else. What do you need to be satisfied? Something that you don't have. Just that next thing. If you just get the next thing, then you'll be satisfied. I mean, literally. And if you're in advertising or marketing here, God bless you. And, and, and own that industry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those, those, that entire industry is built on this idea that you are not satisfied. And if you just get the next thing, then you'll be satisfied. So, so you don't like your car. You're not satisfied with your car. What? Get a new one. You're not satisfied with your house. Get a new one. You're not satisfied with your job, then you just need a new one. Not satisfied with your nose, just get a new one. Not satisfied with your spouse, just get a new one. But here's the deal if I can quote my favorite doctor, I've done this before, you know what's coming. Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? Because what happens when you get the new one? It gets old again. When you have a wonderful meal after you've been hungry with your great friends, what happens the next morning? You're hungry again. Now, everyone who intermittent fasts is like, yeah, not till three in the afternoon. For me, just a coffee carries me all day. Blessings on you. (laughs) What 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 happens uh, after the end of a great holiday with family and friends? You got to go home and you got to go back to work. What happens when you get a new car? It gets dinged and it, and it gets old and it gets dirty and the satisfaction doesn't last because here's the thing, we are looking for satisfaction from things that could never give it to us. We're trying to get satisfaction. We're trying to be filled and happy and content in places from things that do not have the power to make us feel that way. This is what C.S. Lewis says and I think I've used this before and I'm not, if I haven't, sorry, if I have, you'll hear it again. This is from his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I can't get no, da-da-da, satisfaction, if I still haven't found what I am looking for, maybe it is because I am looking in the wrong places. I would say, I would just tweak C.S. Lewis's quote, we were made for another person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And he is the one in whom we find our satisfaction. And so what that means is that we can be satisfied regardless of our circumstances. We can be satisfied whether we got a new car or an old car. We can be satisfied whether we got a new house or an old house, a new job or an old job, a new nose or an old nose. Our circumstances do not determine our satisfaction. Our relationship does, and it is our relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can truly satisfy us. He is the bread of life, and it is in him that we find our satisfaction. So that should actually be encouraging because what that means is if you have been looking for satisfaction and not been able to find it, you shouldn't have been able to find it that, 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 that you, you, if we're looking and looking and looking and still can't find what we're looking for, don't be discouraged because you're looking, you're looking for something that those things can't give you. Take heart because there is something that can satisfy. There is someone who can satisfy and his name is Jesus Christ. Satisfaction is found in Jesus. All right, now we got two more groups that we got to look at and here's the unfortunate um, reality of what this text teaches us. And that is that not everyone will find satisfaction in Jesus. Not everyone finds satisfaction in Jesus. So he feeds the 4,000 people miraculously. And then we don't, don't know like if this is right afterwards or if he's changed where he is. Mark's not clear. All we know is that, that next, verse 11, the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him. Shocker. Seeking from him what? A sign from heaven to test him. So what's going on here? The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're like, "Um, we hear what you're saying, we see what you're doing, and it's not enough. You haven't done enough yet. And so we need you to do something. We need some type of sign that will prove to us that you are who you say you are. Here's the irony of that. He just fed 4,000 people, from seven loaves of bread and a few small fishes. And not only that, earlier he fed 5,000 people, plus 5,000 men, plus women and children, from a few loaves and a few small fishes. Oh, and he healed a man with a withered hand. Oh, and he's driven out demons. Oh, and he calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Oh, and he's healing the lame and the deaf and lepers. And he's raising people from the dead. And yet the Pharisees are still coming to him and saying, yep, it's not quite enough what are they saying? We're not satisfied. You haven't done enough to satisfy us because for some people, no matter how much Jesus does, it will never be enough. And how does Jesus respond? He says in verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. He's exasperated. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I mean, again, ironic, because he's been giving a lot of signs to this generation about who he is. But what's he saying? I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to dance for you because you tell me to dance. I'm not going to say how high because you ask me to jump. Why does he respond in that way? This is what I think. Because for the Pharisees, nothing would have been enough. If he had, if he had called down fire from heaven in that moment, if the heavens had opened up and a a legion of angels had been praising God, if God himself had spoken audibly and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, how would the Pharisees have reacted? It's not quite enough. We need something else. Why? Because those things had all already happened. And it still wasn't enough. For some of us, no matter how much Jesus does, it will not be enough to satisfy Uh, Have you ever been, uh, I have four four of my own children, so I could have chosen like a a dozen different instances where this has happened, but I'm just gonna keep it general. Have you ever been with a child, maybe you're babysitting them or watching them and you're trying to entertain them and you figure out finally after trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, what it is that they want you to do. It might be peekaboo, it might be, you know, standing behind a corner and jumping out and scaring them. It might be tossing them up in the air, carefully, controlled, all that stuff. But when you figure out what it is that a small child will be entertained by, how do they respond? That was awesome. Thank you for doing that. that you know, we don't have to do that anymore. Again. 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 More. Do it again. More. And eventually you're so, like the sheer physical exhaustion, you're just like, I can't do it anymore. I will listen to your crying because I can't, I can't continue to do it. <laughs> That's what the Pharisees were like with Jesus. More. Do it again. More. Do it again. And that is how some of us are like with Jesus as well. More. Do it again. It's not enough. Do you know what the crux of this issue is? It's, it's the challenge between, between proof and faith. The Pharisees wanted proof. They wanted irrefutable evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. But that is not the way God works. He does not call us to proof. He calls us to faith. And faith, by definition, is believing in something that we cannot be 100% sure about. I would argue he has given more than enough signs already for us to be sure about who he is and what he has done. But they wanted proof Jesus was calling them to faith. And so there are, there are many today who are like, uh, I see some of the things that might be you, God, but it's not enough. It's like, you know, I, my, my mother was healed of cancer and the church was praying for her for six months, but it might've just been the chemo. I was out of job, I was out of a job for a year. I know people were, were praying for me and trying to help me out. And then I got a call out of the blue But maybe that was just circumstances. I need more, God. I need need another sign, God. It hasn't been enough. But at some point, and I just, I want to keep it real. For those of us who are like, I need more evidence. I need more signs, God. We may never get them. Because God is not a genie in a bottle that we rub and he comes out and does exactly what we ask him to do. He is not a monkey with a hat who dances when we tell him to dance. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is God of creation. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants it. And I'm just here, I think it's Josh Baldwin, there's a song called Evidence that's out right now. It says, I see the evidence of your goodness all around me. And so we need to stop asking God for more proof, and we need to ask Him to open our eyes to the evidence of what He has already done. Because some of us, Jesus can never, for some of us, Jesus will never be able to do enough to prove that He is who He says He is. Some of us will never be satisfied. So that's that. One more group we got to look at, and that is the disciples. And though it may not seem so, it may not be, be obvious up front, they are actually in the middle. So we got the, the, the 4,000 who ate, and they're satisfied. And we got the Pharisees who are not satisfied. And then we come to the disciples. So Jesus leaves the Pharisees. They get back in the boat, and this is what happens with the disciples. Verse 15, it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And it's like, hello, guys. Did you not just see what he did with seven loaves? You got enough. You got enough bread, even if it's one loaf. As long as Jesus is there, you got enough. And this is what he says. He cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We got to talk about what he means there. But it's not good. Okay? And they don't get it. They think he's still talking about the bread. And then in verses 17 through 21, Jesus goes in on the disciples maybe as hard as he does at any point in this gospel. He gives them eight questions. Most of them are rhetorical. And you can just hear the exasperation in his voice as these guys are arguing about what the bread is and why they don't have enough. And he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes but not seeing and ears but you don't hear and do you not remember? So on and so forth. And then he gets to the end, he says, do you not yet understand why? Because the disciples are in a very dangerous place. They are walking on very thin ice in this moment. And we know that because Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. What does that mean? Well, the Pharisees and Herod did not have a lot in common. Leaven is what you put in bread dough to make it rise and it gets all throughout the whole dough. The Pharisees and Herod were actually really different in a lot of ways. But one thing up to this point in Mark's gospel has been really clear that is true of both of them. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus is here saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He's saying, listen guys, though you are closer to me than anybody else on earth, you are in danger of not believing who I am. You can be, this is is the takeaway, you can be very close to Jesus seemingly and still not be satisfied with who he is. You can be very close to Jesus and still miss who he is. But I love, I love what's different about this than his interaction with the Pharisees. There's one word that Jesus puts in two of his questions that changes everything. It's in verse 21. He says, Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? What does that imply? That someday they will. That someday they might. Not all of them. 11 out of 12. 12. Right? Even Jesus himself, one of his disciples, never actually got to the point of being satisfied by him. But do you not yet understand? There was still hope. And he's saying, listen, beware. Don't let the leaven of the world infect your hearts and minds so that you miss who I am. Uh, a number of years ago, there was an article in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal that talked about this. A number of years ago, a minister here in California uh, took an informal survey in their congregation and interviewed all the people in the congregation who were 90 or older. And what this minister asked them, this was, you know, this wasn't a scientific study, but what, it, what this minister asked was, when were you most satisfied in life? And the, the answers were pretty unexpected. Because what would we expect, what would the world tell us would be the most satisfying moments of life, satisfying seasons of life? We would expect, based on again, what our world and culture tells us, is that satisfaction is like a bell curve, right? Like when you're young, healthy, minimal responsibilities, whole life ahead of you, freedom to do what you want, when you want, that that's a really happy moment. And then when you get to the end, And and hopefully you got enough money saved up and you don't have to work anymore. And like I said earlier, your, your biggest decision each day is do I want to play 18 or 36 today? And if golf is not your thing, it's like do I want to buy 18 or 36 ice cream cones for my grandchildren today? You would think that that is when people would say those were the most satisfying seasons of life. But almost to a person, they said the opposite. They said the middle part of life, when it's supposed to be hard, when you're trying to figure out how to raise kids, how to hold down a career, how to afford a house, how to hold together a marriage, how to, how to pay for college. When, when you're in the middle of the mess and the chaos and the muck, when that's supposed to be the hard part. I Listen, I turned 40 this year. I'm not happy about that. But I feel this. I feel this acutely, trying to keep all these plates spinning in the air. And it's like, this, this doesn't feel like this is the most satisfying season of life. But all of these people who are 90 or older, when they look back on the breadth of their life, they're like, if I could go back to one season, it would be the hard season. It would be the season I felt most satisfied, even though maybe I didn't recognize it in the moment, in the midst of the chaos, when kids were tracking mud through the carpets in the house and setting fires in the backyard, and we were trying to figure out how we were going to afford vacation and how we were going to keep our jobs and balance family and work. It was in the hardest moments of life that they found the most satisfaction, but they needed hindsight to see it. And here's the thing when it comes to Jesus, I don't know this for sure because it's not in the text, but but if I can if I can guess, why were the disciples struggling with their satisfaction with Jesus? Because it was hard. Because it wasn't what they had expected. Because they'd had to leave everything. My, I mean, most of those guys were probably like, I never wanted my life in my life to become an enemy of the state. But here they were getting driven out of town after town, fearing for their lives because of the ruckus that Jesus was was stirring up. They left home. They left families. They're sleeping on ships. They're going through storms. They're sleeping in the woods. They don't know what comes next. And it probably got pretty easy to be like, you know, how satisfied am I with this experience? The answer is not very. But Jesus is like, don't let the leaven of the world What the world tells you satisfaction should look like, infect your hearts and minds so that you miss me. We can be close to Jesus and miss his satisfaction. And that's a word for those of us who are in the church. Because we can know all the words to the songs. We can know all the memory verses. We can dress the part. We can say all the right things. We can show up all the time and still not be able to say of ourselves and they were satisfied do not let our proximity to jesus allow us to miss who he is and what he has done just because it is hard and if that is any of us today and like i can I'll come on in the water's fine take heart there is hope because we may not yet understand keep at it keep coming back keep running to him because he is our satisfaction do not let the leaven of the world infect us such that we think the new car or the new house or the new spouse is what is going to make us satisfied we are not going to find it there we're going to find it only in Jesus Christ In, uh, in, in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon that he preached. He's in a section called the Beatitudes. It's the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What's interesting about that is I think for a lot of us when we read that, we think about what, how do I find satisfaction? What does it mean to be satisfied? Well, Jesus says we need a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so I think we think, well, that means I need to be better. If, if it's the righteous that get satisfied, then I need to be righteous. I need to act better. I need to do better. I need to, I need to clean myself up. But that is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know, what, you know what the Bible says about our righteousness, about our good deeds and our good actions? It says they are filthy rags in light of God's goodness, grace, and holiness. Do you know what it says about righteousness? It says it's not found in actions, but a person. Jesus is our righteousness. When he died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself and he put his righteousness upon us. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not trying to live better. They are hungering and thirsting for a person, and his name is Jesus. So you're going to be receiving a survey. Not a real one. Someone's like, I didn't bring a pen. That's all right. And that survey is going to ask you, How satisfied are you? And if you cannot say today, I am satisfied, that is okay. Take heart. You are in great company because the disciples themselves weren't sure about it yet. We can be satisfied and not in the way that the world promises. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we run hard after Jesus Christ, we can find free, enduring, and everlasting satisfaction. May it be so. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word that, um, that encourages, that builds up, that convicts. God, we, I believe because you implanted it inside of us, long to be satisfied. But God, we are, we are tired of snacking on sugary, carby, empty things and we long for the, the lasting sustenance and protein of the bread of life. And so God, I pray that you will draw us close to you. I pray, God, that you will allow us to see that it is not our good works or our good deeds, it is not our own righteousness in which we will find satisfaction, but it is in your perfect and holy person, is in your perfect and holy righteousness that we can be full, happy, and appeased. May it not just be theoretical, God, but may we actually experience it today. In the morning, satisfy us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now gonna sing uh, one last worship song. It's a song of response. This is a moment to continue worshiping God or it is a moment to do business with God that you may feel the Holy Spirit prompting your heart to do. If you don't know what it means, to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's no better moment than now to make that decision. I would love to talk to you about it. If you don't know what it feels like to be satisfied, but you want it, talk to God about it in these moments. And I promise you, I, I had tied up this sermon, Satisfaction Guaranteed, and I didn't reference that because I was, uh, as I was preparing this morning, I was like, that's not true. It's satisfaction possible and satisfaction is possible through the person of Jesus Christ. So cry out to him if you need it. I'll be back up for the benediction when we're done with this song.
1: Would you stand with us, sing this last song together. Great are you, Lord. Thank you, Pastor Gary, for that word. Wasn't that good, church? Mm. Are you satisfied? Only Jesus. Let's sing it together.
0: the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our savior comes and then forever amen Amen. you're loved you're prayed for and you are sent